Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Magid Mandur, a political analyst and writer for Open Democracy and Sada. Our conversation today, a long, hard look at the military-industrial dictatorship President Sisi is building in Egypt. Magid, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy uh, to be here. Now, various analysts of the Egyptian economy paint a rosy picture. Reuters, for example, predicted back in July the economy will grow by 5%, GDP up to 5%. Are the analysts wrong to take a positive view? Um, so it's basically uh, the question of what the definition of uh, positive is. So if we're looking at the macro figures, yes, there are some positive uh, indications. However, if we break the figures down a little bit and we look at the micro figures, uh, so for example, if we're looking at uh, the poverty rate that, let's say, increasing, it is now hovering around 30%, so that's around 30 million uh, below uh, the poverty rate. Uh, that is based on uh, the government's uh, figures. Uh, so in reality, that can be actually uh, a lot more. If we're looking also at the quality of the growth, um, this is basically driven by debt and projects that have, let's to say it uh, politely, uh, dubious uh, economic benefits. So if you look at it from that perspective, we can say that the picture is not very uh, rosy. If we look at it from the, uh, from the um, uh, perspective of the dynamism of the private sector, we can see that the private sector actually hasn't grown much over the past uh, five years. Mostly uh, the performance has been uh, very weak. And if we look also at the way that the structure of the uh, economy has uh, changed, we can see that the military has grown into a, a juggernaut, uh, which is not good in terms of sustainable economic development. Now, in the piece you wrote for us on 20th September, which you titled Ozymandias, after that the wonderful uh, Shelley poem, Look on my work, she mighty in despair. Nothing beside <laughs> remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. <laughs> in in that piece, you talked about President Sisi's predilection for big projects, such as the new administrative capital. Now, perhaps you can describe for our listeners just what that project is, what it costs, and what it symbolizes. Yeah, um, so I would say that this uh, project really fits into the poem, um, one of my favorites, actually. So it's a, a mega city. It should uh, house around 6 million people, and it's about 45 uh, um, kilometers east of uh, Cairo. It has a budget of about 58 billion, um, which makes it huge. So the budget actually is... Uh, quite uh, remarkable. Uh, Sisi has basically called it the the beginning of a new uh, republic. Um, so it's very symbolic. Uh, it is symbolic of those uh, mega uh, um, projects. And what is not really uh, discussed about it is that it is a massive act of uh, social uh, engineering. Basically, the regime's rationale is to make sure that what happened 10 years ago does not happen again. 
So they are moving the capital away from uh, Cairo that is much more populous, much more uh, difficult to uh, control, filled uh, with uh, slums, which makes it harder to control, uh, harder to, uh, to uh, repress protests. So it would become very difficult for a, a protest movement, for example, to surround the government uh, buildings there. So just to, uh, just to uh, give an idea, the starting prices for a flat there is about $62,000, which is beyond the reach of the vast majority of the uh, Egyptian people. So it's a way to basically create a safe environment for the regime to operate. It is a massive act of uh, social uh, engineering. It doesn't have very clear economic returns. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from that uh, perspective. Uh, of course, it is basically managed and uh, executed by the military. So those uh, scenes of Tahrir Square, which I was, I was there just before the revolution with the protests, uh, that simply can't happen then. Correct. I mean, they can happen again in Cairo, but they will not be as effective. Um, so even if you have a mass million men at March, the government is not there. So they can simply, let's say, continue to work, uh, continue to operate, surround themselves by the classes that are not prone to revolt, and they can repress it swiftly with mass violence without any real repercussions um so it is also creating a space between the kind of the haves and the haves nots it's very 1984 it's uh orwellian actually and he has other big projects as well, doesn't he, CC? palaces and road building projects that cut through neighborhoods so this can also be viewed as a, a part of that. I think they are building around 40 bridges in uh, Cairo. Uh, the bridge building is, is very uh, top down without considering um, the local neighborhoods. I think there was a bridge that was built so close to the buildings that I think it was about 50 centimeters away from some of the balconies uh, and uh, the windows. So it's also not about traffic, but if you have the bridges like that, then you can easily uh, deploy security forces, military uh, forces across the city very quickly, uh, considering that, uh, that the city is rather big and it has a lot of narrow uh, streets that would basically solve the problem for him. So, uh, as I said, the regime is trying to make sure that what happened 10 years ago will never happen again at whatever cost. And that is the rationale, that is the motive that we can understand all of those uh, uh, projects through. And, and you've touched on this tight relationship between the military the government and the economy. You mentioned the private sector, but how is that damaging the private sector? So, uh, as I said, the private sector is not really performing particularly well uh, over the past uh, five years, uh, considering that the economy has, let's say, has kind of 
been growing, not super fast, but it has been uh, growing. And the reason for that is that the regime also does not want any competing centers of uh, power. So they're effectively stifling um, the private sector in a way that would make sure that there would be no uh, other centers of uh, a power that could somehow challenge the regime's control and uh, grip. For example, in, in uh, the uh, cement industry, this was an industry that had uh, an abundance of uh, supply. Actually, the uh, capacity was much more than uh, the demand. But the military decided to build a massive new uh, factory at the cost of a billion dollars. And that just crushed the um, uh, private sector. So the strategy is, is really to drive the private sector down and uh, create more business for the generals. Correct. Um, so basically, CC or let's say the military has, they clearly um, despise civilians just in uh, general. Uh, they think that they are generally uh, inefficient, wasteful, uh, and uh, corrupt. So there is kind of an uh, ideological justification that the military can do things better. So that's what's basically being used for the military to extend its uh, activities in that way with the final goal of making sure that there are no other social centers of um, power that can actually compete with them either from the private sector the civil society political parties the uh, opposition movement they are really trying to convert the country into a North Korea-like uh, state. You mentioned some of the figures, $58 billion uh, for the new administrative capital. The government needs to borrow to cover its debt. That's expensive. Meanwhile, you've made the point in your article, the tax system favors the rich and harms the poor. Um, correct. And that's a very clear policy. So it's basically the perfect storm. And uh, servicing the debt is, uh, is basically uh, eating away at one third of uh, the budget, really placing severe uh, strains on the budget. At the same time, the tax system is actually uh, pretty weak. Uh, the tax base is also pretty weak. Uh, it's about 16% of the GDP, which is on the lower end. And uh, at the same time, it is also very um, regressive, which means that the middle class and the poor are the one paying for uh, the debts. However, this strategy is also from the political uh, a perspective is also very smart because the regime is now entrenching itself into the global financial system. So the survival of the regime becomes somewhat, let's say, uh, intertwined with global financial uh, uh, interests. So this helps the regime to, let's say, deflect criticism, to keep getting loans, to keep getting uh, aid, uh, especially uh, from the West. 
Interesting. Uh, you make it too big for it to be allowed to fall. And as you say, servicing that debt, very expensive. But uh, the people who are loaning don't want to see defaults. Um, I, I want to ask you about the price of bread. There's expectations it'll be raised. I recall when I was in Cairo and Mubarak was still in power, there were riots over bread shortages. Is CC at any risk of popular discontent taking to the streets? Uh, well, I think that that's very hard to tell. <laughs> uh, but the regime is now secure and feels, let's say, um, confident to do that. Just to explain to the listeners, the last time uh, the bread uh, prices uh, increased was in 1977, and that led to mass riots. So if there would be a reaction like this, it's very hard to say. Uh, but it is worth noting that it's technically the second uh, increase in uh, the price of uh, bread because I think I think it was last year, if I'm not uh, mistaken, they uh, decreased the weight of the bread by about uh, 200 grams. Uh, so that made it more expensive indirectly. But the popular reaction is very uh, hard to gauge. Um, however, uh, what is clear is that this will increase Poverty rates between 4 to 5%, uh, which is in the millions. So it will have a devastating uh, impact. Yes, and as you said, the poverty rates are already very high and, and growing. But meanwhile, Egypt has friends in high places. America, for example. Are, are you at all surprised that Biden, despite some chiding over human rights issues, continues to back Sisi. He's, he's waved through that, uh, the, the military uh, deals and, and continues to support and back the government. Uh, unfortunately, not very much. I wasn't really expecting a change in uh, policy. Um, I think there is uh, a consensus in uh, Europe and uh, the states that Sisi is uh, the only, let's say, reasonable uh, option. Uh, for stability. So I'm not really expecting uh, a change in uh, policy. Also, uh, as I said, the regime has now very much uh, entrenched uh, itself in uh, the global uh, financial system. It also has gone on a spending spree for uh, arms, uh, especially um, uh, European arms, uh, Italian arms, French arms. So it has really placed itself in a position where it can basically torture uh, a European uh, citizen to uh, uh, death. Uh, here I'm referring to uh, Regini, uh, the uh, Italian uh, PhD uh, student, and basically suffer no consequences whatsoever. And the business continues to flow. So there are no sanctions. Uh, this is not being raised. Um, there are no uh, consequences except for some uh, diplomatic uh, pressure. Uh, the regime even hasn't turned in any petty security scapegoat official here. So they're not even willing to compromise e at any level. Uh, there is no local uh, trial for the people uh, responsible. So that's just one example of how uh, entrenched they are and the level of international consensus that the regime has now become um, acceptable. Mm. And thousands and thousands of uh, prisoners of conscience, journalists, uh, uh, protesters 
almost rotting in in the prison system in the huge prison system that CCS has has built. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Gulf states, how important they are to CC, and I'm thinking here particularly of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but what sort of cost does that support come with, do you think? Well, uh, CC has been very, let's say, uh, intelligent with that one. So uh, in the beginning, they were extremely uh, important. They were really bankrolling him. So let's say between the coup uh, and 2015, they were the major backers for him. But now the situation has changed dramatically. Uh, the regime now receives uh, support from various uh, international uh, um, uh, sources. And the regime has now consolidated uh, itself sufficiently uh, that it feels confident that it does not need to toe the line with uh, the GCC. So, for example, if we look at Yemen, uh, unlike the Sudanese, Sisi did not send any troops, nor was he willing to somewhat uh, engage in the war there. If we uh, look at Libya, uh, Egypt is following its, I wouldn't say less belligerent, but more of a moderate policy uh, as uh, opposed to the uh, Emiratis. So this hasn't come at a significant cost to him, except in the case where he was basically forced to transfer to islands in uh, the Red Sea to uh, the Saudis, which did cause a significant domestic uh, backlash, uh, including within the, um, the um, uh, judiciary. So you could see some cracks going on there. But besides that incident, uh, the cost hasn't been very high for him. So he was kind of able to maneuver himself in a way uh, where he could reap the benefits, but pay very little of the costs. And when we think about it, the rationale behind that is that he is, the focus is to make sure that the regime survives and to make sure that uh, what happened 10 years ago does not happen again which means that there is no uh, appetite for uh, for uh, foreign interventions or wars because there's also no popular support for it. Um, this has long gone, especially uh, in a place like Yemen that really holds a bad, let's say, uh, reputation for uh, Egyptians. Yes, indeed, because in the 60s, the Egyptian army suffered uh huge defeats in in Yemen. Remind me again of the the names of those two small islands that uh, Sisi agreed to turn over. Yeah, that's uh, Tehran uh, and uh, Sanafir. Uh, I touched on the prisons. Uh, the degree of descent, uh, uh, the degree of the stifling of dissent is really something that Egypt has not seen before. It, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, correct. So, first of all, in order to understand how this works, they are not regular prisons. Um, the prisons are basically designed in a way either to break you mentally or to break you physically. So, the conditions are so atrocious that basically people die. And this uh, includes a deliberate uh, policy of uh, medical uh, negligence. So, there are a lot of executions uh, in Egypt that you just don't see and that you don't hear about because they don't actively execute um, the person. They just leave you there. Uh, 
the most uh, prominent example was uh, uh, Morsi, uh, who was basically deliberately murdered just by negligence. Uh, he was kept in, uh, in uh, solitary uh, confinement. He was uh, diabetic and he did not receive his medications for years. So his death should not be a, a, a surprise at all. So, yes, the public space is completely closed. People are being arrested for almost no reason for a, a Facebook uh, uh, post. So the level of repression is really unheard of. Um, the difficulty here is that repression now has its, uh, let's say, has its uh, own uh, logic. So even if the top wants to rein it in, it's very hard to do so. And there are ideological uh, drivers behind that. So uh, even if the regime decides to let up because, I don't know, uh, Biden is uh, pressuring them, there are very strict limits to how far they can go because this will actually affect the stability of the regime. So the leverage that the West has is very limited. Well, that's interesting. Pursue that a little more. You're saying that that uh, the repression is so ingrained in the system that even easing back on it uh, would cause the what the system to seize up somehow. So it has become somewhat decentralized. So if we look at the case, for example, of uh, Regini, he was doing research for his uh, PhD. He was uh, arrested, beaten, tortured to death. So the logical response here is that if he's an Italian, why don't you just deport him, uh, uh, right? This seems to be very risky to, to, to do that. And the reason for that is that the security services actually believed that he was a spy. And this belief is stemming from the brainwashing that has been going on for years about a global international conspiracy that what happened was basically because of foreign agents abroad, uh, blah, 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 blah. So this just shows how things can really get out of hand and put the regime into a jam. And this is so important for them that they're not even willing to put the people on trial locally so you can see how vital a case like this for them is and it just shows how repression has become so ingrained baked into the system that you really cannot change it like that and if we look for example at uh, the state uh, apparatus so if we look at the uh, judiciary now saying that we have a uh, judiciary is kind of a bad joke <laughs> because there is no independence anymore. So how can you change that? You really have to change the state structures completely once again. So repression is so widespread and so uh, pervasive and it has local social support, which makes this even worse. So you have to go to your base and say, by the way, guys, what we were doing was wrong or that wasn't the right way. So there are domestic factors here that would make it extremely difficult to just let up. You can't. You simply can't. 
you might reduce it a little bit you might release a few famous people uh, here and there uh, but there will be no drastic change in uh, uh, policy that would be way too uh, dangerous well no mega you've you've just touched on that and and that is uh, this idea that the president does have a base of popular support and it's fueled by this kind of muscular nationalism that does appeal to many Egyptians. What do you what do you say to those who say, look, the, you know, he has support. He's got popular support. People like this tough uh, military nationalist approach. Unfortunately, I would say that that is true. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean that he has the support of the majority, because this is, again, very hard to tell. Uh, Egypt is a country of 100 million people. Uh, and the majority is not the urban middle class that you hear a lot from. So if he has the support of the majority, that's a questionable point. But if he has a solid base, he absolutely does. There is no doubt about it. Um, and that's basically coming from a almost chauvinistic fascist form of uh, nationalism that really goes back to the 50s. So it's this view that the nation is this one uh, organic whole and uh, any forms of dissent or uh, opposition, not even at the political level, it can be also at the religious level, uh, at the social liberties uh, level, means that you are outside of the nation. So if you're not Sunni, uh, uh, heterosexual, uh, uh, conservative, things become extremely difficult for you. So this justifies repression. And unfortunately, this, is, this, this, this view is so deeply entrenched that even the uh, opposition uh, adheres to it, which makes it extremely difficult to outmaneuver the regime. They are all stuck uh, in this, let's say, uh, ideological uh, framework. So it's very hard for them to think of the nation as something that is not eternal. Uh, if you watch a movie or you just listen to a song, you think that the nation has been the same for um, 7,000 years, the state has been the same for 7,000 years. And the military has been there in some sort of a form for 7,000 years, which is, of course, ludicrous. <laughs> like any cursory reading would say that the state is not, it's about 200 years old. Uh, the modern military is about the same um, uh, age, even kind of a bit younger. So this view of uh, history is basically taught everywhere and if you say something else then you are considered to be outside of that and once you are um, uh, outside you are fair game so um, repression jails tortures all of that is okay there is no problem and and that's where the difficulty is which nobody has really tried to break through yet so we need a new view we need uh, intellectuals we need thinkers that see things differently. And this, unfortunately, hasn't happened yet. This, uh, all of the changes now are at an, um, let's say, uh, artificial 
level. It's not deep enough to challenge that ideological base. And and indeed, uh, many people, yourself included, uh, are outside the country because uh, of, of the extreme repression that is practiced inside it. So the price is very, very high, both inside and outside the country. So now there is a new uh, phenomenon, which is the uh, opposition uh, abroad. This didn't happen before. Uh, Egypt wasn't like uh, Libya or Syria or uh, Iraq. Repression was there. It was uh, intense, but the levels after 2013 are very, very, very new. And the level of violence, and it's also in the open. Everybody knows what is happening. It's very clear what's happening in jails right now. And and the justification for it are not connected to reality at all. Um, so it's very clear that people are being uh, tortured, uh, left in a solitary uh, confinement for years. They are being held in a pre-trial uh, detentions for years without actually being convicted. Uh, the charges are ludicrous, conspiring with foreign forces, blah, blah, blah. So it is very clear what's happening and there is a lot of support for it. At least there is an agreement that we're going to look the other way because if we don't look the, the uh, other way, then it will be extremely difficult to live with ourselves, which is also a price that will be very hard to pay in the future because there has to be a reconciliation at some point. And there will be a very deep discussion about how do we move from there. And that's not a discussion that I see happening anytime soon. And without this, the country cannot move forward with CC or, or without CC. So CC is not the problem, unfortunately. It is very deeply entrenched in how the state uh, operates as well. So there is this top-down view of how the state works. It's not that the state is there to serve society. It is the other way around. It is the state that leads society is the one that follows. And this view is being held by many people, including liberals, leftists, uh, Islamists. Um, so it's not just the regime. It's not just the military. Um, the problem is really pervasive and the difficulty is that there is no recognition as of yet after 10 years that it is a problem the problem is that the military is in uh, control and once they leave everything is going to be hunky-dory that's not going to be the case and the difficulty now is that in 2011 there was a chance of a more peaceful transition this was actually possible with minimal liberalization efforts. At the moment, this perspective is far gone. Even if Sisi decides to step down tomorrow, how do you deal with such a heavy legacy? So yeah, things are not going to be simple. It's very bleak, I know. But <laughs> Yeah, as you say, Megat, and, and really the, the construction of this uh, fascist state using the military and people trapped within it as you say it's a it's a bleak picture yes yes it's 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 it will take uh, like i don't know what the solution out is uh in 20 
11, there was the chance that maybe the military realizes that if they liberalize from the top, they can somehow preserve their powers and, and uh, interest, and it would be a managed transition with minimal uh, loss. But now the military is so deeply entrenched and the state structures are so hollowed out and somehow very brittle that without overhauling all of that, there is no chance of a real democratic uh, transition. But that's extremely difficult um, because how can you do that without mass violent upheaval? Uh, it's, 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 I really don't know how that would be managed. And the military is now taking the, uh, let's say, or they are preparing in a way to use whatever violence is required for them to stay in power. So I fear that something like Syria can actually happen, where they would use whatever they need to do, even destroy the country completely to stay where they are. And that is a horrifying uh, scenario because Egypt is 100 million people. And the regime has showed that, it, that it's willing to do that. I mean, it massacred a thousand people in a day when they needed to, when they wanted to say we are going to take power and we want to cement our legacy now. So they massacred a thousand people in a day. People forget that. The thousand is a considerable number to murder in one square in one day. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah, so it will be a, a difficult transition. Yes, uh, as you say, a bleak, a bleak scenario. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> but um, you lay it out very well, Maggot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Maggot Mandur, a writer for Open Democracy and Sada. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Next week, my podcast guest is Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.